Hello, and welcome back to Think Critical. I'm your host, Joshua Miller. It's been a while since I recorded an episode, but I have tons of content planned for you guys coming soon. This week, I interview Scott Beyer of the Market Urbanism Report. We delve into how urban planners can use markets to improve cities, and how government regulation can stifle urban growth. Uh, hello, Mr. Beyer. Uh, welcome to the Think Critical Podcast. Joshua, thanks for having me. So, uh, Mr. Beyer, that's the best way to describe um, yourself and what you do. Well, I'm a journalist who writes about urban policy in the United States. I have uh, regular columns for a number of different magazines, including Governing Magazine, HousingOnline.com, and the Independent Institute. And more importantly, I own the Market Urbanism Report, which is a think tank that's dedicated to advancing free market urban policy reform. And uh, currently, it's, it's got a uh, net social media following of 50,000. We publish weekly articles and monthly podcasts. And um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a growing think tank that is really trying to change policy in the United States. So I guess this, that leads into my first question pretty nicely. So in short, what, what is market urbanism? Uh, what, and, you know, what makes it different from just, you know, reg- regular, I guess, regular urbanism? What, what's, the, what's the market aspect from and what altogether is the best way you could describe it? Yeah, well, so market urbanism, the bumper sticker version is crossing free market policy and urban issues. So what that means, I actually have two definitions that I like to give of market urbanism. So on one hand, it is a theory, and it's really asking how would cities function in a fully free market, private model? So if that the housing, the transportation, and all aspects of the public administration were not in fact public, but were privately run, and based on a negotiation, a standard negotiation between producer and consumer. And the reason that I call that a theory is because it's not a very, that's not exactly a frequent uh, site around the world. If you go to most big cities around the world, they do in fact have public governments that are run by the government. And so while some people are, some entrepreneurs are testing the idea of, of free private cities around the world, it's really not a mainstream concept. And that's why I call it a theory. But on the other hand, market urbanism is a, an actual set of pragmatic policy reforms that are politically likely, that can be plugged into our existing political context. And uh, they may not be full-on anarcho-capitalism or libertarianism, but they're kind of, um, these reforms are kind of pushing in a market-oriented direction um, and, and yet can exist within a, an existing context. So an example I might give would be something like zoning. In most cities in the United States, zoning is extremely restrictive and and is really a hazardous regulation. A market urbanist who's a market urbanist and pragmatist might not say abolish zoning altogether, but they might propose an alternative form of zoning that is better than the status quo. And so that's, those are kinds of the, that latter version of market urbanism, the policy package, is one that I write about a lot more. 
And I, I think what's kind of refreshing about uh, market urbanism is that, like, when you think of um, when you think of a lot of like libertarian or libertarian, I guess, uh, leaning ideas, which I think you could qualify, uh, you know, market urbanism as, yeah. you, you know, uh, libertarian leaning ideas, they tend to be sort of focused on the like, and I sort of on the idealization of the countryside, kind of right, where you you imagine most of the supporters are, are people who want to sort of like live in a mountain somewhere, but they need oh. to give you that, that sort of that sort of the sort of bent, and it, and then that doesn't really, you know in the in the real world when we're, we're urbanized. There's a good reason why we're all urbanizing, right? It's more efficient, yeah. and and there's a growing population. It doesn't work out. So it's, I think it's really nice is that there's this, you know, the, the market urbanism is 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 you know promoting the reality, uh, and it promoting the efficiency that is the city within the you know libertarian or libertarian leading framework. Yeah. For some reason, I always think cattle ranch. Like when even even today, when somebody yeah. says libertarian, I think of like a West Texas somebody living on a West Texas cattle ranch. <laughs> um, which there's nothing wrong with that, but yeah, it is uh, the libertarianism kind of has this reputation as people who are isolationist and hate society, and that's that often is how it's branded by people who don't like libertarianism. They try to frame it that way. But yeah, I find it to be a fundamentally urban concept uh, in the sense that a lot of, and we can get into this later, but really a lot of what market urbanism is calling for is more efficient land use. Like what would a private sector, what would the private sector really do with lands if the government was not impeding them from, from doing anything and they could just do what they want? Well, I think in a lot of cases, they would pursue more efficient land use. A lot of people who are, who might be building a single family home at this point because of zoning would instead be building mid-rises or even skyscrapers. And so that's an example of where a libertarian property rights paradigm is actually going to produce something that would reflect a city. And um, a lot of people don't think that way, but that's kind of how it is. So, so markets would drive urbanization. So you, you think that in general, when it comes to like a market framework, that there's a, there's a, there's a drive towards urbanization or that they are supportive of urbanization? I do. I, I think the two are fundamentally compatible. So um, kind of like you were saying, the world is urbanizing and that's happening in the United States. Uh, the rural share of our population has been increasing, has been decreasing for several decades as people are moving into metropolitan America. And this is becoming even more common around the world where people are getting out of agrarian poverty and they're moving into cities. And I think that the reason is universal, which is that urban agglomerations and and big metros tend to produce really efficient economies and good jobs. And agrarian situations very often produce hard work and misery and poverty. And so it would be natural that people would try to move into the cities. And so I think, yeah, I think there's a certain organic market outcome that is going on there. And um, I think to go even a little bit deeper, so when when all these people are flooding into metropolitan America, um, what kind of land use would reflect a libertarian model? Well, I think it would be something that focuses on infrastructure efficiency. So for example, if you were to build a, 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 an electrical line in a given area and there was only going, basically you want to center more people around that given electrical line because that's what's going to help it pay for itself. And that's what's gonna make it efficient. Whereas you don't wanna send an electrical line way out into the boondocks that is only gonna be covered 
financially by a handful of people. And so I think the scalability of infrastructure and the ability to put many heads over a public works project is something that I think very much much fits into the libertarian model. Yeah, especially because like, um, like when you're talking about uh, like, for example, something like broadband access, mm-hmm. um, and, and you, you talk about broadband access in like super rural areas. The I mean, there's no incentive for a company to ever build uh, you know broadband out there, and that's when I say you know that and, and really the best the best time to say we want public broadband is for the people who aren't going to get covered by by private broadband, and then city in places which which are talking about municipal broadband, like which are mostly cities, are probably the city are probably the places where you can have the most most efficient use of private broadband because the, because there's the greatest chance for for competition because there's there's probably you know more more companies competing in that area as opposed to you know we're in a rural area where it's very you know there probably only be if at all one company going and trying to provide services there. Yeah, I mean, I think the 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 concept that we're talking about applies to really everything, whether it's roads, broadband, electrical, sewer, light rail. And it applies whether you're talking about something that's being provided by the government or something that's being provided by private industry, the same general concept applies, which is that if you're putting those things in a dense area, it makes a lot more sense than running them out to a sprawling area. And so that's why I think that um, under a libertarian, a more market urbanist model, you would have more density because it just makes more financial sense to center core infrastructure in an area that's already populated. Yeah. And, uh, and I think it also goes to show that, 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 um, markets are promoters of this efficiency you're talking about. Cause when you look at when people, people tend to complain about the suburbs as being a very inefficient use of, of land, uh, because you know, they aren't farming, so they're not getting that production, but they're not as efficient as a city in the suburbs primarily exist. At least the ones people complain about the super planned ones exist because of government restriction, government planning. Um, a lot of times even like Jim Crow era legacy planning. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, so it's always it's kind of you know incredible to me that you, when you find like like uh, you know people who are in favor of um, you know in, in favor of the free market, but then they sort of don't you know understand that part of the application of the free market is going to have to be making sure that the market can take care of the of, of land distribution, and you know I think you know in my in my normative framework I think that uh, you know like like zoning restrictions and the ability for you to say to your neighbor that they can't build like a house on their property because it'll be you know quote unquote like you know it'll ruin your view is the most uh, you know it's, it's ill-fitting for a liberal society you don't have a share of ownership in their land other than yeah essentially the implicit that you both pay taxes to the government that 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 you know that that quote unquote protects the land for you but other than that there's no i don't think there's any there's there's not really a liberal backing to saying to someone you can't build there because it's gonna it's gonna hurt me it's it's gonna indirectly hurt me when it's not you know have you have they have no responsibility to you in that situation yeah and that's why i am a critic of zoning i'm actually i'm writing a book about market urbanism that is going to develop a zoning model that is that that is very different than the existing ones because yeah I I agree with you I mean I don't think there's no fundamental there should not in my opinion be any legal or philosophical justification for writing a zoning code in which a certain interest like a a set special interest say the existing landowners or existing homeowners are able to control how much housing gets built in another area that that seems like a classic case of regulatory capture. 
And so the zoning model that I am, that I am uh, proposing in my book, which I, as far as I know, is going to be the first of its kind. I've, I've asked around to quite a lot of people and I've never heard them say anything similar has been written, but basically it would, it would be something that allows pretty much anything by rights on an existing parcel, but then it controls, but then it, it, it does in fact police externalities. And so it's not so much the use or the density of what you're building on your land. It's what, um, it's what it does to other to surrounding properties. And so the example I'm going to be using is something like a pig pen. I think in a normal zoning code, a pig, a pig pen absolutely would not be allowed to be built in a residential neighborhood. But under a market urbanist zoning code, it actually could be allowed, but then there, we're going to be policing for things like noise, air pollution, runoff, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and so the onus would be on the pig pen owner to build their facility in a way that that uh, reduces those externalities and makes the basically makes it, it it makes the usage still function as a good neighbor within the neighborhood. And so I think that's a, I think we really need, when we're talking about zoning, we really need to focus on that concept. It's not so much what's going on a given parcel, it's controlling for the externalities and trying to prevent those. And I don't think any zoning code as of now works with that sophistication. They basically just say X is allowed, but Y and Z are not allowed. And it's really just a blunt tool. There's no, um, there's no flexibility in most zoning. And uh, I think it's what you said about uh, regulatory capture is really interesting because in Japan they had they have uh, zoning done nationally and mm-hmm. not by local groups and you know under normal like sort of Hayekian information uh, you know Hayekian information theory the local groups would be able to do it you know be able to do zoning so much more effective but I think that in zoning particularly it's this sort of an interesting reversal because because the national zoning board knows less about local special interests they're able to zone more scientifically because they you know they they don't they don't worry about about like the view from X Hill and that when they, when they're zoning, they just worry about does, does this street map look, you know, like there's enough space to grow. And so, you know, that's a, I guess that's, that's sort of like an interesting, um, like sort of flip on the head of what, you know, libertarians would normally say, cause libertarian, you know, cause it, it, libertarians would, if given the choice between like a national or a local authority would typically choose the local authority. Sure. But they think there's a, there's a, a an opportunity within the libertarian movement to, to, to re- recognize how uh, national authorities can actually protect against abuse of power by local authorities. Yeah, and that that's beginning to apply in the United States. I'm seeing a lot of libertarians and market urbanists, myself included, who are calling for the increasing, I don't want to say the nationalization of zoning, but I at least see um, people advocating for taking zoning from the local level to the state level. So there's been some proposed bills in, in California and Oregon to try to do that. And um, every libertarian I've seen has has been a proponent of it. And so I'd say the way to unpack that, because it does seem like a contradiction. I don't know that if, I don't know that I would ever call zoning scientific. I, just, I think it's kind of an oxymoron. I think zoning is generally a regulation. Some of it can be good, some of it can be bad, but I think almost all of it gets captured at the end of the day. And I think um, turning it from the local level to the state or national level is a way to prevent it from getting captured and, and, and basically serving one special interest at the expense of the broader society. 
And so, yeah, Jap Japanese zoning is uh, very good in that way. From what I understand, they used to have local zoning and they realized during the 1980s when the country was really booming, they were realizing how incompatible restrictive zoning was with an economic boom. It was basically creating speculative bubbles. And so they had a, a number of um, steps leading up to a 2002 full nationalization of the zoning. And uh, yeah, that's, that's basically created a much more liberalized paradigm in the nation, particularly in Tokyo. Tokyo usually allows more permit, more housing permits than like the entire state of California on a year by year basis. So, and it, 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 it and then it, it shows in the actual results because the housing is much cheaper there than it is in comparable dense cities. Well, it's a, it's kind of a, a, you know, ironic, I guess, that the nation which allows for the, as much urban growth as J uh, Japan does seems to have, it seems to be having, you know, a particular issue with encouraging other parts of its growth, like population growth. And I've, I mean, I've, I've talked before about uh, Japan's the oncoming economic problem, but it, I mean, it, 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 it just goes to show that if they, if they're able to be so successful in a society that by all regards is, you know, it's nearing an economic, you know, uh, breaking point, they're going to have to make some serious decisions soon. Um, then we can certainly do it in the United States uh, and, and have, you know, have even much greater effects than, than what they've had in Japan and much greater success. We are, I mean, America has so much potential for growth, I think that compared, compared to most any other nation in the West that, um, you know, it's, it's simply poor, poor policy that's been is holding, our, holding us back in many regards. Well, I was just about to say, it seems like Japan in respect to urbanism has figured out, has figured out a lot of things. They not only have better zoning policy, but they have in a lot of cases, really good transportation policy that often has a, a public private or fully private aspect to it. And generally just like, I don't know. They just do things intelligently. It's like everything from their placemaking to the fact that their fire trucks are smaller so that um, here in the United States, we have huge fire trucks. And then that determines the road width, like our, our transportation and building codes often hinge a around allowing our massive fire trucks to be able to turn around in the street in, in the rare event that that would actually need to happen. In Japan, they've already figured out that problem. They have really small fire trucks that manage to do the exact same thing as our bigger ones. And so it's kind of like they strike me as a society that's, that has figured out how to build and manage its cities. And we could be looking to them to, to learn our lessons. So I want to I want to move into uh, the policy. Um, so if you had the ears of all the world's mayors, like what what would it be like the three things you'd tell them, and what are the, what are the core policies of market urbanism that you try and get them to adopt? The three things. Well, it doesn't have to be three, well, but like you know, like small yeah, matter things. I I definitely know the the first two, and I'd say the first one is that you need to fundamentally challenge the idea that zoning is a good policy, and that that the commons or the government should be able, should have a fundamental right to regulate somebody's land um, because we, we see how zoning gets captured and we see all the problems that it creates. And you really just need to fundamentally challenge the idea that the government and zoning policy should dictate how a city gets laid out. 
So that would probably be number one. Uh, number two is a little tougher to explain because it's not quite in the, the general conversation as much as zoning has be become. But number two, I would say would be, you need to rethink the way you use right of way and potentially introduce market-based signals into, right of, into the usage of right of way. So for example, rather than exclusively designing cities and streets and sidewalks for the automobile, um, you need to think about the other uses that, that people may want to use the space for. And the market mechanism is the best way to, to determine the proper use. So for example, if you're, if you're the, say the mayor of New York City and you're looking at all this curb space that you're giving, for, giving away for free to car owners, you might look at that and say, well, in a market paradigm, we would charge for that space. And it would either, it would either become, it might still remain parking, but it might just as well become like a bus lane or, or a place for bike parking or a place for garbage pickup so that trash is not being piled on the streets the way it is now in New York City. So, so yeah, I'd say number two would be, think about, think about the reuse of right-of-way and how market signals can make right-of-way more efficient. And then a third one, this is kind of a wild card, would be let's rethink the idea of having unified school districts that are based on, um, you send someone to a school based on which neighborhood they live in. And let's think about maybe a voucher model where you have a bunch of schools, some of them are charter schools, some of them are public schools, some of them are private schools. Every kid in the, in the city is given a voucher and they can choose which school they wanna to go to. And I, I think that would reduce a lot of the, uh, there's really a lot of social and economic problems that come from tying school enrollment to district and, and having a location-based system as opposed to a merit-based system or a voucher-based system. I, I think that points are actually really interesting. I think it goes back to the whole like where where libertarianism can be the most effective is where it's not being talked about. Like, because I think that in general, when you're talking about school policy, it's so much easier and so much more efficient to do vouchers in a city because you, if you have X amount of schools in the city, you, people can get to those schools you know, way easier because they're over a small smaller area where, where transportation is you know more readily available in cities because you can take the if 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 I'm in New York City, um, and I and I and, I, and there's a and there's a school halfway across the city. There's a feasible it's feasible for you know for people from my neighborhood to get to that school. Um, whereas if I'm in a rural area. You know, there's there's one school I can get to probably, and and and, and meanwhile, but, but we notice the rural areas are the ones who are always caught talking about uh, you know school choice in the cities. They tend to favor the public schools when really public schools would probably work out better in the rural areas because there's just not as much potential for competition there. But you can compete and you can have efficient transportation in you know in in urban areas. Yeah, well, that's the irony because. Yes, there's more, there should theoretically be more more choice and competition in a city, and not, really not even a city. I mean, when you think about like why are so many of these little outer ring suburbs kind of like if you look at a, a an old city map, like say if you look at a, the map of Milwaukee, there will be all these little suburbs around the city. Why is that? Well, a lot of that boils down to schools, like people who were living in a suburban jurisdiction didn't want to go to the city schools and maybe pay the city taxes. And so they started their own school district. And um, I guess there's something to be said for that, but I, it, 
I think I would like it. I would like it to be opened up a little bit because when you combine all the schools in the city with all the schools in the surrounding suburbs, you have a lot of choice. And I think I, I'd like to see every citizen be able to tap into that. Um, and uh, yeah, I think one of the you know, like if we look at Japan, I think that this this just you know a little touchback on that. I guess um, in Japan, you know, kids in Japan when they go to when they get to schools, and I'm unfamiliar, I'm unfamiliar of the way they handle uh, poly versus private education in Japan, but I do know that that students in Japan, even at a younger age, do take transportation all across their cities to get to where their schools are, and um, I mean, and, you know, and, and given all you know, even foregoing all the problems on, on you know in New York City or in other you know American transportation via you know in terms of safety and i mean I, I take a subway all the time i don't think it's i don't think it's that bad but maybe for a six-year-old it is but uh um, but there is this, this untapped potential to to to, to you know to, to get kids who are in areas of worse schools and you can just put, literally put them on a bus or a train to the other schools but if only the, the you know the public education system would account for that or allow that or our education yeah. system in general yeah uh so i want to i want to touch back on to the uh and we mentioned about right away. Um, and so, so you sort of, I think you're starting to approach into um, like introducing markets to more aspects of cities. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, my, my, I guess I've like sort of like a dual question is what can the government do to cultivate markets in cities? Like what are some more market cultivation things it can do? But the second question is what about the aspects of the cities, which, which are, which are, which are, you know, public, you know, aspects, like how do, how do we handle, for example, the creation of grids in the cities? Like, because, um, uh, and I um, like, for example, Boston, um, when it was first built and designed, was there's no planning involved by the Puritans. In New York, it was designed, and I, I mean, I, and I have to say, New York grid is way better than the Boston spiral thing, whatever they have going on up there. Um, and or or in terms of things like a like a like a like a subway, like you know, is there is there always going to be this incentive to create such a like a rigorous subway system? Um, via markets. So, so how do we cultivate markets and how do we make sure that those markets still take care of the things we really like about our cities? Okay. Well, I'll actually answer your second question first, because I think when you're talking about things like, like grids, which oftentimes were laid out at the founding of a city. And I'm, and I'm thinking of also, like, if you, if you look to some of the old Western cities, like those traditional main streets were laid out like that. That was the very first streets in those cities. And oftentimes they were laid out on a grid too. And I think the, the really interesting question would be, so say if you were to have a, a, a private city in 2020 and say that the governing model was basically just a bunch of different investors who formed the board of the city and they made decisions based on their own financial interests how would they lay out the city? Like it, when, when before any ground had been broken and they're just planning the streets, would they create a grid? Would they create spaghetti the way you have in Boston and some other suburban areas? And I don't really know. I guess I, my hunch would be that they'd probably create a grid because there's a, a certain standardization to that. But I think it's an interesting question and it's kind of hard to answer. Like I think, I think in some cases the grid has been a private outcome and in some cases it's been a government one yeah like i know um uh, david friedman uh bill friedman's son is a big advocate of of like uh, anarcho-capitalism his version i think is the more sane version of anarcho-capitalism that i've heard or it's more about like yeah it's kind of more like a like a city-state society where you have like you know, a bunch of like different there's no overarching state it's just kind of a bunch of communities and it, his point was like well somebody asked him, like oh you know wouldn't um 
wouldn't it be chaos within the city, you know, in, in these cities to have like, you know, no standard for the way that, where they're building buildings and, you know, like what if, if they wanted to start like a, you know, the city existed, how do we, you know, how do we say it's not going to like grow out just like random spiral. It's going to stay as a community. His point was like, well, you know, each of the cities actually still is like its own micro state. There's still going to be a group of people who, when they, when they break ground, say, there's some rules and one of the rules could be we're building in this grid. We have a big grid, you know, we have, we know where the streets are going to be. Well, yeah, I guess I don't really see it as being chaos. Like, and, and see, this is a common, this is sort of just like a truism that's thrown out about market urbanism and anarcho-capitalism is they're saying, if you don't have the government to plan something, it'll be chaos. But I, I just don't really see that. Like, I don't know what they mean and I don't know why it would be because if you, you have of people who are deciding based on their financial interests, I actually think it would be the opposite of chaos. There, there'd be far more rationality than probably current city grids. It just in the sense that the infrastructure quite literally is being extended and planned in a way that is going to help somebody's financial bottom line and probably help a lot of other people's financial bottom line as well. And so I, I, I've never really understood the chaos line. Yeah, I have a saying about um uh, about bureaucracy, you know, which would be doing a bunch of the planning. Uh, like, if capitalism is creative destruction, then uh, bureaucracy is uncreative reduction. It all it does is, yeah. is you know, it, it 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 limits and it it just kind of it's it's just it stifles things. It just you know pushes things into into little random boxes. Um, doesn't you know it tells them they can't leave. Doesn't. I don't think, I mean, in terms of like, and I'm probably more to the left of you, but in terms of like parts of the government I hate, I don't like the idea of, you know, resources. If any resources are being collected in taxation, I want the resources to not go to, to bureaucracy or to be handled by an extensive bureaucracy. Yeah. Well, I, so I think another alternative to, to the quote unquote chaos of having fina- private financial interests decide where the infrastructure should go I view in a political in a political system, which is what we have now, it's still chaotic in the sense that oftentimes politics is what drives the location and routing of infrastructure. It's kind of like if you look at I-64 in my home state of Virginia, it, it did not end up going through Lynchburg, even though it, it goes, um, you know, it, it extends through Charlottesville and it extends through across the state, but it doesn't end up going through Lynchburg, which is one of our biggest cities. And from what I understand, that was because of a a dispute between senators, um, you know, back in the, I I think the forties or fifties when it was getting built. And so it's like, do you really want politics to decide to decide the routing rather than somebody's personal financial interests? Because that strikes me as more chaotic. And especially if, um, when, when, the, when, even when the politics are decided by saying it's, that's not even, you know, about, about like quote unquote good policy, like, you know, a lot of the zoning in the United States is, it wasn't created to try and achieve some sort of like, you know, like utilitarian outcome. It was created because of Jim Crow. It was created you know, to, to specifically to keep African Americans out of, out of certain areas. Uh, like, like a, like a lot of people, you know, when they, when they, when it's really, it's always really, you know, surprising when I point out the people like, or it's like, you see this neighborhood, this neighborhood, it still is redlined. It still exists. It's still, you know, it, it, you still can see exactly where they drew those lines in segregated neighborhoods. Yeah. 
Okay, and so to, to answer your first question also of how can cities start to steer towards markets, I think it, especially in respect to right-of-way, um, this might not be a fully market urbanist policy, but it's kind of like a halfway market urbanist policy, and that is congestion charging, um, which can be done through modern technology. I, I think modern technology makes a lot of this easier. So where there used to be a, re a really big transaction cost when it come to pricing roads because you'd have to stop at a toll booth. Nowadays, you have electronic transponders that can take your license plate and then send you a bill in the mail. So it's sort of like, I think a kind of an incremental step to market urbanism would be congestion charging for specific neighborhoods, uh, tolling interstates, or even putting um, meters on parking on curbside spaces and determining what the market charge to park there or use that space can be. And it's all very doable. Uh, it's kind of like politics is what prevents it from actually happening in a lot of cities. And what about what about uh, in that case, like uh, things like uh, carbon taxation uh, in cities to try and keep the? I mean, I mean, and I I, I don't mind city air, but a lot of people uh, you know complain to me about city air, and I, I always feel you know I'm uh, I, I don't live in New York, but I'm a New Yorker. Um, so I said, you know, I said, like New York City air is not that bad. You know, it's it's you're just, you just are afraid of the culture. Uh, but you know, there is a complaint there about about you know you know the air quality in cities. So what do you think about um, you know about about you know tax uh, like Pagovian taxes, I guess, in cities, well, you'd, pollution you'd or probably, uh, you'd probably think I'm a softy on this kind of stuff because I'm from Virginia, but I live in New York, and I kind of I'm, I'm always complaining about things that you might think of as being innate to New York. And so I'm very sensitive to a lot of stuff that, you know, when you think about the air quality in New York, but also just the noise and the traffic, like I'm, I'm very sensitive to, to kind of the constant honking. And I think a lot of transplants are as well. And the funny thing about it is like to, to bring up the sort of the externality argument is a lot of that is created by automobiles. In fact, I would say almost exclusively, um, you know, and, and, and from what I understand, like during the shutdown, during the heart of the shutdowns, the, the lack of automobile traffic caused the air to be cleaner in a lot of cities and caused a lot of cities to be quieter. So I don't think it's, it's um, contradictory to market urbanism or libertarianism at all to, to effectively say, if these machines are coming into the city and creating all these uh, externalities, yeah, there, there should, there could be a Peruvian tax that, that uh, tries to mitigate some of these impacts. How to price it? How to price it? I don't really know, though. That's that's probably a more complicated question. Uh, speaking of tax, uh, what about a land value tax in, in cities? So you, you think that that, that you know, say uh, what what Henry George proposed? Oh my God, it's like 180 years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. You think that would that would um, that would um, you know be be beneficial for a market urbanism a market urbanist society? Yes, I view land value tax as a really beneficial thing. Um, I think it's kind of, and the thing is, is that there's there's a lot of people who are even more, obviously the Georgists are very hardcore on this issue, but they've kind of turned me to their position as well. Because when you think about what we tax right now, we tax sales, but the reality is we should want sales. We should want economic activity. They tax property improvements, but we should want property improvements. They tax income, but we should want high incomes. So why are we taxing the things that we want? Um, we should be, to your earlier point, taxing the externalities via Peruvian taxes. 
And I think, yeah, taxing land makes sense because uh, there's a number of economic arguments that have been made about it. But I mean, I think above all, it, um, I think it makes kind of a philosophical point about who is actually putting value into the land. And I think in some cases, many different actors within society and within the government and within the private sector are putting value in the land. And so land value tax is kind of a more just form of taxation, but it also just makes economic sense. If you want land to be improved and, um, and you want dense, prosperous urban development to happen, a land value tax is going to be way more effective than a property tax in accomplishing that. Uh, so the um, the market urbanist position is that a you know um, rent seeking behavior or co- is contrary to the growth of markets in cities, or is contrary to the uh, to the positive effects they'll produce. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that would be the that'd be the basic classical liberal line. So, yeah, I, I would I would think there's a yeah. Um, so I think let's let's move beyond the U.S. now and again and beyond like fully developed cities. Mm-hmm. How could we um, you know start to apply market urbanist ideas in the third world developing cities, places like um the capital of Nigeria is going to have I think a hundred million people by the year twenty fifty, which is really insane. Uh, and there's plenty of other cities in the third world who are growing at a similar rate. So what, what, what would you, if you, if you, you know, if, if you got to their authorities, if they have authorities, um, what would, what would you say to them? If you want to, if you want your city to look, you know, the, 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 the trying to become, you know, the best you can be, what, what would, what would, what would you give to the developing city specifically? I would hope to have a much better answer for you in a couple of years, uh, because I'm actually planning on, on in this coming decade, doing a big, I, I don't know if you know, but I I went on a big three-year cross-America excursion to study market urbanism in different U.S. cities. And that was a project from 2015 to 2018. And that's what I'm writing my book on now. And then I want to do a similar uh, three-year project through the developing world, uh, studying the cities in Latin America, Africa, Asia, to see how market urbanism can apply to those places. So I can't really tell you because I know I, I know the the situation is obviously very different than it is in the United States, and I don't want to to have kind of this top down mindset of what needs to happen in those places. Um, the interesting thing that I have discovered in in at least doing some international travel is that it seems like in a lot of cases that the less developed and more poor a country is. Oftentimes, the, the closer they already are to market urbanism than a lot of uh, a lot of the U.S. because the government has not come in to standardize things as much and and have all this sort of like first world style regulation. So, I mean, if you go to, for example, Mexico City, you'll find that their mass transport is actually a lot better than pretty much any transport in the United States, amazingly enough. And some of that is because of good government investment, but also a lot of it is because they actually allow private transit. Like there's all these little microbus networks that go around and are kind of informal and, and fill in the gaps that the public transit is not accomplishing. Well, in the United States, uh, that's illegal. Like there are 
they, those kind of jitneys have tried to operate and operate to some degree in places like New York City, but they're literally illegal. And so it, it's kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, it's kind of funny to me that um, like LA, I think, has the worst public transport in this in this country, right? But well, what are some <laughs> of the worst? And it, it's because the government at one point, you know, kind of the government got regulatory captured, uh, if that's a verb, um, and you know, and and laid down this car oriented, I mean, this car oriented transport scheme, very poor public transport, and even in, in New York, in New York City, which in my experience has had the some of the smoothest public transport in the country, only has this kind of smooth public transport because they've sent so long and so much a resource, you know, so much so many, so many resources on, on on building its subways up, uh, and even then they still have tons of problems and there's still you know there's still delays. So, so yeah, yeah, I don't know if I'd describe the transit in New York City as smooth. Well, well <laughs> it's, 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 better it's, the, it's better than I think the median U.S. city by a good bit. For sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, one thing I will say about the subway is that uh, it at least goes like feasibly anywhere I want to go in the city. I can take a subway there, and it won't take like an insane amount of time. Or it's like other cities, it, it won't. It'll, I mean, there's just there's just like Miami public transport. I tell you, <laughs> Miami. The way they have it set up is so that if you want to like go one place and it's like down the block, if you want to take transport there, you will you will end up going around the entire rest of the city and then go back there, and it's like you're right next to where you started. Um, I mean, and they don't they don't have like you know things going both directions. Um, whereas in, in at least I mean I think at least in New York, like the best park transport I've been on has been in in London actually, because I think at London for what London just I mean they I think that the reason why London uh, you know did it so well is that they. Um, is that I think there's just they haven't they 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 expanded their capacity they expanded um they they just made their their train technology better and they and they had a you know they had and they have all the locations taken care of or in other places it just doesn't seem like this you know it goes that way yeah yeah I I don't know to me there's a lot of I think a lot of the way. So if you look at cities where the gov- where mass transit is not so much planned by the government or it's not exclusively planned by the government, but where a private sector has been allowed to, to, to surface, I find that the outcome generally is you have these like little carpool taxi type things, or you'll have these little micro buses that are kind of flex buses that can go along it's like different how Uber routes. Blew up and these, it, it, like how Uber sort of blew up in the cities of these, you know, these poorly planned public transport because it, it, it was kind yeah. of the way opposite of what they had before. Yeah. And I tend to think that that, as opposed to the underground subways, is going to be more the future. I, I think it's that kind of, to me, is what the free market is creating. That's a, rep, that's a representation of consumer demand because – I think consumers don't want to go, I don't know, I think the fixed route transport model may be somewhat of a dinosaur as far as having a a fixed underground subway that has a set number of stops. I I would feel like that's going to be some, you know, potentially decades from now, that's going to seem dinosauric when we know that we could have this flex bus automobile oriented transport system that is way more flexible and can go into different routes and pick up a different number of people and sort of like, especially with the rise of technology, that's, that's sort of like creating an algorithm for those routes. I don't know. To me, that seems like it would be more of the future than 
a subway system. Yeah. Like, uh, like if you think about it, um, like what if, if, if instead of having this, the subway system that resources are put in the subways and nobody rides or whatever like that, instead you had a fleet of, of buses and all you had was people with an app on their phones who could press a button and then say they're there. And then there's, you know, automatically calculated a route. So, you know, say if everybody's, if there's a higher density of people in one area one day, more buses go there and in and, and, and it ends up you know there ends up just being people get to the locations faster in a more comfortable way without wasting literally wasting you know electricity i guess mm-hmm. yeah i mean I, I well that makes sense to me it seems intuitive and i'm actually going to have an illustration in my book that tries to outline what I think a a fully market urbanist transport paradigm would look like and what I think it would be is basically you walk out on your block and I'm going to try to demonstrate all this through the illustration but you walk out on your block and you you open your phone and, and bring up your app to try to figure out the closest transportation and basically you've got bike share moped share scooter share micro buses ride share underground subway I, I actually am going to call it a mass transport buffet because it is a buffet of options. I think that if we were to have this liberalized paradigm where not only private company, private transport companies are allowed to work, but a right-of-way system has been laid out in front of them where they can bid for the use of space, I do, in fact, think that you would have a buffet of options. You'd have all these different companies competing for each other for the, for the uh, commuter for the commuter audience. And they would be able to look into their apps and figure out what is the cheapest option, you know, what is closest, yada, yada, yada. And I think what you'd have is you'd have a bunch of, I think prices would go very low because when you have all that competition and they're bidding, you know, they're, they're competing for your money. And I think it would be very easy in a situation like New York to get places very quickly for two to $5 because there's so much competition. And that's not really what you have now. You either have kind of like this hyper-regulated rideshare industry that takes you places for very high prices, or you can settle for the subways, which kind of like doesn't go very fast and has all kinds of other problems. Yeah. And I think it also goes to show like if you if we just abolished medallions for the for taxis and just let people drive taxis, uh, you know, we, I think I think we'd, we'd end up having a you know much better time in, uh, in terms of the transit situation in New York. And I mean, right now, I think that the price of medallions are ridiculous. And the fact that these you get you have you have. You have all these drivers who put out of work because of an inflating market and speculation on jobs, what essentially are glorified job positions and or job potentials. Um, you know, we, it, there's a if we just let the people drive the cars around and pick up others instead of stepping in and trying to regulate the amount of taxis on the road or whatever reason what reason why they're trying to use medallion. Well, yeah, I think it, so. If you were to go over the following hypotheticals, so if New York City did not give away free parking, so that would make car, that on its on its in itself would make car ownership far more difficult and expensive. So there'd be less car ownership, and then you use that space as drop-off zones or bike parking or scooter parking, so that those companies can finally function. And then, and then you do what you say, which is lift the medallion system and sort of this protectionist licensing system that pre- prevents like jitneys and rideshare and more taxis. You would just have a, it would be a complete game changer. Like getting around New York City would feel completely different than it does now. It would be way cheaper. There'd be way more options. 
I think the city's mobility would skyrocket, but it's sort of like, if, 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 I mean, it's, it's sort of a hypothetical because it's so distant from the way things are now. Um, although I have to say, um, when you, um, with, when it comes to the mass transport, I would never accept a future, um, where there's at all a use of, uh, a use of Segway being encouraged. I think the Segway is the most, you know, the most utterly disgusting, decadent aspect of the American culture. It's, it, it, it does exactly what walking is at the same pace of walking, except it just looks stupid. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, it looks like it could tip over. Yeah. But, um, hey, there's a market for it. So I'm a market urbanist. Like, like let, let is them it really, use is it really worth degrading the character of Americans at the ride the Segway? Like, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's just walking, but you need a helmet and you look like you're, you're gonna, like, you just look annoying. Yeah. Well, that's, it's for the tourists, but, um, but, yeah, I mean, there, there are other things that I think could come into play. You know, if, if you're talking about like changing the right of way, there's all kinds of little, I call them micro, micro transport options, things like skateboards or rollerblades that I think even that would become more common if, if people didn't feel threatened by the, by sort of like the unregulated automobiles that are controlling New York City right now. And there was more safer right of way for them. Uh, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a small section of, uh, of kids in my school who are like all ANCOMs, but also are into skateboarding. And I told them, if you would, if you would, if you just adopted capitalism, we could bring you skateboarding anywhere in this town. They would, I mean, I mean, they would just drop all their political positions just for the, just for the skateboards. Uh, <laughs> uh that's actually, I, I, I never, you know, speaking of uh, like, you know, like different city planets, I never imagined how an ANCOM would like, you know, try and manage cities. I mean, it, it'd probably just be like a slow degeneration into Chaz and then whatever Chaz was. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, it, it would be whatever they're talking about on NumTot. NumTot would be the, uh, but, 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 but it doesn't, it'd be, it'd be like the official governing body of, of this model. Yeah, but, but, but wouldn't, I think NumTot still believes in a state. I mean, I mean, like, like I mean, I assume, assumedly, Numtop would still like to, you know, to to have someone making policy decisions. I don't. I mean, most ANCOMs, uh, like the I know, aren't like the like the like the technical. Like, oh yeah, I'm, a, I'm really a democratic socialist. Or like the uh, just just abolish the government, we'll all be fine. I'm like, that's not. It's not, I don't think that's right. But you know, where it's, <laughs> I, I I guess I guess what the uh, the closest thing they'd have like the the urbanism board, where it's like you got a committee of like graffiti artists. Um, the drug dealers and like that one local music venue and they just decide the, the city alignment, which would, I don't know, like, he's like, we put the barricades here with the barricades there. This area is a free skate park. Um, you know, the bank, I don't know what we're going to do with the bank. We're just going to use it as a storage place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. My, my generation has some really wild political views. It's like you know, it's like I'll, I'll be like, oh yeah. So what's your what's your political alignment, Josh? Like, oh, I'm a, I describe so I describe myself as like a classical neoliberal, but I, I'm more in practice, I'm more of a, a third way new democrat. And this, and like, what, what are you? And it's like, uh, I'm a I'm a sterner alignment anarcho communist with Maoist characteristics. I'm like, well, you are also 14. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Mr. Bayer, for uh, coming onto the podcast. And uh, you have some really interesting and I think very, very useful ideas. And uh, ho- hopefully, they get you know they, they they enter the main the full mainstream in the future. 
Thank you, Joshua.